Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Uh, This approach to interpretation believes that there is a singular meaning to each given passage of of Scripture. Uh, There's a single truth, something to unearth, an interpretation to unearth that is the truth for that particular passage of Scripture. Now, alongside of this golden nugget interpretation is a belief that interpretation itself is a result of the fall. Uh, So, Uh, interpretation and the need for interpretation is actually a result of sin. Uh, This kind of way of treating scripture thinks that before the fall, before when we were in direct communion with God, there was no need for interpretation. Uh, And so uh, the the eventual goal or the belief then is that interpretation in the future kingdom won't be necessary whatsoever because everything will be good and perfect again. So this is the golden nugget sort of approach. I don't know if you've ever had the um, experience of feeling that pressure before when you come to uh, the scriptures. I know I've experienced that pressure before um, just as a, as a follower of Jesus growing up, uh, but also um, as, as somebody who deals with the scripture regularly, tries to, to teach it faithfully. Um, there's, there's this kind of uh, voice in the back of my head, help people discover the golden nugget. Uh, we, we actually talked about that in ministry in, in college, like, oh, this is a great nugget. Um, Anyway, uh, so that's one way of thinking about um, interpreting and approaching Scripture. Um, Another way is what I'll call the conversational approach. So instead of seeking to unearth one given truth from a passage, we're allowing us to have a conversation with the passage and the passage having a conversation with us. That's the conversational approach. We're also allowing the passage to have a conversation throughout the whole Bible. So the Bible is talking to, to itself, different passages. The writers are talking to each other. We're talking to the scripture, conversing with the scripture. The scripture is conversing with us. A conversational approach doesn't, under, uh, doesn't view or, or think of interpretation as something sinful, but something that is inherent to, to creation itself something that's part of the fabric of creation. Interpretation in in a conversational approach believes that uh, interpretation is necessary because conversation uh, takes place when you're in relationship with someone and with others. And so we were created to be in fellowship with God, in conversation with God, and with one another. And this means that as we have conversation with one another, we, we do so for the sake of knowing one another better. And so that's why we have conversation with the scripture, because we want to know God better. Uh, a conversational approach uh, to scripture does, it does not mean an anything goes approach to scripture. That doesn't mean you can make it say whatever you want it to say, because in, when it comes down to it, we're having a conversation with how God reveals himself through the person of Jesus Christ, and we're doing so empowered through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has a a limited 
number of things um, that the scriptures will or will not say. And so it can't mean anything goes. Uh, but it does mean that it can have a variety of meanings depending on how the spirit is using it at that time. And so it doesn't mean whatever because we're still in conversation with the person who holds the meeting. We're in conversation with Jesus. And so as we approach this passage, um, you might feel the golden nugget sort of thing, like I need to categorize this and this and this. Uh, You might feel that kind of pressure. But what I would encourage you to do is have a conversation with this text, of which this sermon and all sermons, by the way, are... Uh, it's just a part of it. It might be an initiation or whatever. But any sermon is always part of the conversation. It's never uh, the period. It's always the dot, dot, dot on the the before and the end. And I think there's a name for the dot, 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 too, that's not dot, 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 right? Whatever it is. Um, We'll call this sermon dot, dot, dot. So converse as home churches, converse in journaling, converse in prayer, I actually thought, you know, when you come back to the scripture a year from now or 10 years from now, the conversation might look different. Uh, but the, the idea behind engaging with the scriptures is to have a conversation with the scriptures because we're conversing with the God of the universe who's breathing upon these scriptures. So with that, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses uh, 31 through 46. Um, this is the passage on the sheep and the goats, and it... <laughs> Uh, if if um, I'm, I'm dating myself and, and things, but uh, if anybody's familiar with Keith Green, like the 70s, 80s, you know, Christian musician, Jesus movement sort of thing, he has, he has a super cheesy song called The Sheep and the Goats. Um, I was going to actually play it as the form of reading the scripture this morning, but it was seven and a half minutes long, and it was really cheesy, So I invite you to do that at home today. You may be on the ride home. Get on Spotify or on Apple Music and put on the sheep and the goats. And you will just be happy. Maybe by the end, it had its time. This just might not be its time anymore. Anyway, um, Matthew 25, 31 and following. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also also will answer, 
Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? You will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So this passage, just a little bit of context here, uh, this passage is the last bit of Jesus' teaching before the cross. Um, They're headed to the upper room. This is where Jesus and John's gospel is going to wash their feet. Uh, In a a day and a half or so, he's going to be led to the cross. And so these are, these are, Jesus is basically uh, his, his final, some of his final words. And he begins by saying this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. I want us to think about that word glory for a little bit because I think there's some pictures that we have in mind when we think of this word or we hear this word glory. We might think of uh, the Old Testament scenario when uh, God covers, when he's, he's giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, he covers Mount Sinai in his glory or his presence and it's dark and it looks like a storm cloud. It's like this majestic kind of glory. Or we might think of when the people are led through the desert by a cloud by day and a fire by night, we might think of that as God's glory. There's, when, when we use the term glory, a lot of the times we think of things that are magnificent or transcendent or those kinds of things. And I suppose it is okay to think of glory in that way because God definitely did reveal himself in that way throughout the scriptures. Um, however, there's a, a quality and a characteristic of glory that we miss if we only think of the magnificent. And we, we need to remember, too, the way that we read the scriptures is progressive in nature. And so the final statement that God has on who he is in his character and in his nature is Jesus Christ. It's not the cloud on the mountain. Uh, it's not fire. It's not uh, a cloud that leads through the day. But it's the person of Jesus Christ. And so N.T. Wright says this to describe glory. He says, glory is the dignity of being put in charge of God's world. The dignity of being put in charge of God's world. And so the revelation of who God is through the person of Jesus, as Jesus comes as, as king, this is God's statement on how he's going to rule. So this is Christ the King Sunday, right? We're thinking about the rule of God and how God rules now and how God will rule. And so what we understand and what we can gain uh, in, in terms of a vision and an imagery and an understanding is how God will put Jesus in charge of this world. So we might think of glory in the magnificent, but we, uh, what we want to do is ground it in the next few minutes in the person of Jesus. We might also associate glory with authority, and so that holds up too if you think about Sinai or or the other um, kinds of things. But in Wright's language, Jesus, the glory there, the authority, is the dignity of being put in charge of God's world. Now, if we think about people who are put in charge of God's world, uh, some of the characteristics we might think about, and, and granted, this is broad stroke, right? This is broad stroke, reading headlines, making observations. I personally don't know any rulers of this world. I don't know if you guys do or not. Um, I'm not in that echelon of of people. Um, I think I just missed the invitations, but that's okay. Um, But we would maybe use some words to describe them like powerful or power-hungry or influential 
or rich or autocratic or prideful or elite or elitist or loud. I feel like everybody who's in charge is loud anymore. Um, Or well-spoken, maybe. Uh, Some words that might be uncommon. Weak. Meek. Humble. Vote for me. I'm weak and meek and humble. I actually had some signs printed. I didn't get elected. Um, Sacrificial, wise self. You guys are super quiet this morning. That's all right. It's okay. It's okay if it's taken four days to digest turkey, I suppose. Um, Humble, sacrificial, wise, selfless. Um, Those might be words that we wouldn't associate naturally. But the point is to draw a contrast here. Because the way that we think of glory and the way that we think of rule is, is more along the lines of the powerful and the power hungry and the prideful and those kinds of things. But Jesus is drawing a contrast here to the very nature of God and how God is going to rule. And so when the Son of Man shows up in his glory, when Jesus shows up in his glory, when he's assigned, uh, being, uh, assigned the dignity of being put in charge of God's world, there's a certain tone that goes um, along with that. The incredibly important thing about this rule that Jesus brings is his care for the least of these. And not only his care for the least of these, I want to suggest this morning that Jesus was actually one of the least of these. And so it's not just this idea that Jesus is caring for the least of these, but the idea that Jesus is one of the least of these. In fact, I would say that Jesus is the least of the least of these. The one who submits to crucifixion. Not only that, but the way he lives his life. He has no place to lay his head. He has no home. He often goes hungry. He's tired. Right? And so he's the least of the least of these, but he is the one given the dignity of being put in charge of God's world. So let that soak in for a moment. Because I think sometimes when we think when Jesus comes <clears throat> to be put in charge of God's world, it's going to be like a holy version of the presidency or of a, a prime minister or some ruler of the nation. It's just going to be a God version of that. But that's not what we're getting here at all. The least of the least of these, the lowest of the low, is the one who's going to be put in charge of God's world. Dignity is going to be granted to the poorest of the poor of human existence revealed in the person of Jesus. That's going to be the person who rules forever. Not a a godified, glorified presidency or whatever world ruler you want to choose. Free of sin and all that kind of stuff. No, this this ruler that we have is is going to be the one whose, whose life regularly had contact with the poor and the sick, and the destitute, and the outcast. The person who would never get elected in any government is the one who's going to rule for the, the world forever. Let that soak in for a moment. For me, that's good news. So let's sit with the phrase, the least of these, for a few minutes, um, because this is, I think this is a super important uh, part of this passage. There's a lot that's 
held in this, uh, in this phrase. There's no golden nugget interpretation of this passage uh, or of this phrase other than to say the least of these is an incredibly important phrase in this passage that we need to sit with. So let's have a conversation with the phrase the least of these. On one hand, it seems simply defined in the passage. It's listed out. It's those who are hungry, thirsty, strangers, those who are naked, those who are sick, or those who are in prison. In one sense, we don't need it to point to anything else than, than what it is, those in our society and our world who fit that description. One of the folks in our interpretive community this week, the, the group that gets together to talk about the passage for this Sunday, uh, is a, a social worker, and he described these verses as a kind of mandate for their work. And these verses have certainly influenced uh, tons of Christian ministry throughout uh, the centuries and throughout history. And so this is one thing it communicates to us, our concern for and our care for these folks who find themselves in this category. But uh, moving the conversation in a slightly different direction, there are also some commentators who suggest that the least of these are representative of God's people. And why they say that is it's just not descriptive of the hungry, the destitute, the poor, or those kinds of things. But uh, Matthew uses a specific phrase alongside of that. And he says, these brothers and sisters of mine. If you go back earlier in Matthew's gospel, I think it's chapter 7, um, People are coming to him, and, and they're, they're saying, hey, your brother and your, your brothers and your mom are outside. They, they want to talk to you. And Jesus is like, who are my brothers and my sisters but the ones who do the will of God? And so some commentators think that this describes the people of God throughout human history, whether it be Israel or the church. And so the least of these are representative of God's people. And so it's not just about economic situations like the hungry or those in prison, um, but descriptive of God's people, of the church. If that is the case then, then uh, the people who respond, the sheep and the goats, it's not just how they respond to the hungry and the destitute and those kinds of things, but it's how they respond to God's people, their witness in the world. Because God's people are supposed to be God's witness in the world. When we, uh, the ideal is when, God, when society, when culture, when the world looks at God's people, they see Jesus, right? That's the ideal. Obviously, the church falls very short of that, but that's what we're called to. And so uh, this, this interpretation would say that as, as they see us, the sheep or the goats, see uh, God's people, they are responding to God himself. And I think if you take another conversation point, hopefully you're tracking with all of this, Another valid way of understanding these verses tells us something about the nature of the church. If Christ was the least of these, then the church takes on the shape of King Jesus. And so if Jesus was the least of these, then the church is called to be the least of these. So yes, on one hand, it does mean that the church ministers to the least of these, but it also means that those in the church God's people have taken up residence among and can be counted among the least of these. There's a super long quote in your bulletin uh, that Aristides um, writes to the emperor in the second century, and he describes Christians. 
And this is what he says. You can follow along. He's describing them. He says, they do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to one another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. Love that line. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Love that line. Every one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as over a real brother. For they do not call one another brothers after the flesh, but they know they are brothers in the spirit and in God. If they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed for the sake of Christ, they take care of all of his needs. If possible, they set him free, which means they pay for him to be set free. If anyone among them is poor or comes to them, or, or comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. This, O emperor, is the rule of the life of Christians, and this is their manner of life. I love, I love that last phrase, manner of life, because I think it helps us to be a bit introspective. You know, asking one another, asking ourselves, what is our manner of life? Friends, what is your manner of life? What is your manner of life as you follow Jesus. I think for the follower of Jesus, our manner of life has to be an association in some way or another with the least of these. Not, not just as, as people like those people, the least of these, but that phrase we need to take up, it, it's an invitation and it's a calling for us to take up that phrase ourselves to be one of the least of these. I think practically it means that the least of these are always in our life and always on our radar, but it's also an invitation to find ourselves as the least of these. And this is very hard to do in an affluent society because the least of these certainly is not a goal. That's not the trajectory that we're, we're aiming for in any sense but at minimum, our lives must be informed by the least of these. Friends, the way that you and I live, the choices that we make, and in brass tacks, it does, it does come down to economics. Um, but more than that, but at least that, as followers of Jesus, we make choices, practical day-to-day -day choices in our lives informed by the least of these. The least of these in our county, in our neighborhoods, in our school districts, in our hospitals, the least of these in the world. As God's people, the least of these is always a part of who we are and how we live and the choices that we make. Um, I didn't put this reflection question in for you, but I think this would be, and, and maybe potentially would be a, a great one, especially for this time of year, when all of our 
society is focused on consumerism, but add this to those reflection questions. How um, are your thoughts about money and possessions informed by the least of these? So let's go to another conversation piece here in this passage. Uh, because there are characters of the sheep and the goats. I, identifying who they are, the sheep and the goats, uh, you might think, oh yeah, these are the sheep, these are the goats, I understand who they are, but it's really not actually that easy to categorize um, these folks. The sheep seem to be good. They seem to be the good people uh, because of what they've done for the least of these. But the thing is, they're absolutely shocked by their commendation. They had no idea they were doing anything that was meaningful, anything that was associated with the kingdom. There's, there's nothing here in the commendation of, of, of the king to these people. There is nothing here about belief. Now, that's not a final statement on anything and believing and being associated with eternal life. And But again, this is part of the conversation piece of Scripture with itself. There's nothing here of belief at all. These people have simply just shown mercy. They've simply just shown mercy. But not all sheep are good sheep. Some are bad. Yes! I even planned that one. I didn't spend the week saying it in the mirror, but I, you know, uh, my kids are like, dear Lord, this, this guy. Uh, one of the other texts, uh, so even some of the sheep in and of themselves aren't all good. Some of them are not good. Uh, one of the other texts, and I would encourage you to read this. It's, it's pastorally, it's one of my favorite texts in the Bible. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 34, and, and as a pastor, I read, um, Several times throughout the year, I'll read Ezekiel chapter 34 and John chapter 10 alongside of each other um, because it gives me a sense of what it means to be a pastor of, of a people or a shepherd of, of sheep. But in Ezekiel 34, what you find is um, there, there are sheep. Um, some are fat sheep and some are malnourished sheep. The malnourished sheep are, are kind of the least of these. Uh, the big fat sheep are the ones who like butt them out of the way so they can just take all of um, all of, of the food and of the pasture. Um, and so there are some bad sheep even. So it's hard to categorize the sheep as you read scripture uh, with one another. And then you have the fact that the, the shepherd in Israel uh, was sheep uh, or was a shepherd of both sheep and goats. And so you read Ezekiel chapter 34, or just shepherding imagery in general in the scripture, the shepherd was the shepherd of both sheep and goats. Uh, the difference was sheep could stay warm overnight because of their fur? No. Wool? Thanks. I minored on textiles, you know. Um, so they can stay warm. Goats can't do that. And so actually... When you, when you think about it, goats are the least of these because they can't stay warm by themselves. They need each other to stay warm at night. And so you have the shepherd being in charge of both the sheep and the goats. And then, in just a couple chapters in the book of Matthew, Jesus is about to lay down his life for the sheep and the goats, isn't he? 
And so we want to categorize, you know, sheep and goats, but it's not as easy as it may seem. What we can say from Ezekiel 34, reading that kind of uh, in, in conversation with what we're reading here, is Ezekiel 34 and Jesus in himself foreshadows a day when all of the shepherds who have been looking out for themselves, and this is Ezekiel 34, was a, a condemnation of the work of the shepherds because they were just looking after themselves. They didn't really care for the sheep at all. And what they promise in Ezekiel 34, what the prophet promises, is a shepherd that will come after all of these shepherds of Israel, will be sent by God, will be in the line of David, and he will care for his flock. And so eventually there will be a shepherd that's put in charge of the flock, sheep, and goats. Are you a sheep or a goat? I don't think that's the point. But often that's the question that we ask. What I'm taking from this passage is wrestling what the least of these means. I want to have an ongoing, and I would suggest... Uh, it's just good for us to have an ongoing conversation about what the least of these means. I want to have an ongoing conversation with Jesus about this phrase. Um, wrestling with my relationship to the least of these and also my identity as one of the least of these. I want to let the presence of the least of these shape my image and understanding of the nature and the character of God. Because it's, it's wild. Jesus shows up as the least of these. The God of the universe shows up like that. It shapes how I understand and, and, and how I think about God. It shapes about how I think about eternity. Jesus seems to identify with the least of these, both in his life and in his teaching. And so a lot seems to hinge on God's relationship with and our relationship as the people of God with the least of these. I suppose very practically in the context of our world, the passage calls us to be attentive to works of mercy. I think that's one thing that we can certainly take. One thing I, I can take away from the sheep and the goats is that there are people who have on their radar regularly, and this would be the, the sheep in this sense, but I don't think the sheep is the point. I think having people on your radar, having the least of these on your radar is a regular part of, of that group of people's, that's, it's a regular part of their lives. and ought to be a regular part of our lives. When we live oblivious to the least of these, or when we make decisions in our lives oblivious to the least of these, we seem to be missing something that is absolutely central to God's kingdom. And when we live oblivious to the least of these, I actually think we miss something of God. Because God so readily identifies with them. Just a, a small 
commendation and challenge to our church. This is one of the reasons I'm grateful for one of our three values. Is our, our last one is being justice-oriented. Our values guide what we do and the decisions that we make and what we put our resources to. Um, and, and, and when I look at the world and I look at the least of these in the world and everything that's going on in the world, oftentimes I feel incredibly disempowered because I can't really do anything about it. I simply don't know what to do. And I can probably do very little. You can probably do very little. But I'm a part of this community of faith. And together, this last month, several of us were part of, in some way or another, feeding 57 families, our neighbors, through our food pantry. We are helping one family with housing and and trying to help them get back on their feet through Homes of Hope. We've purchased this compassion house to, to help refugees get established in our community. This isn't like a back-patting kind of thing, but when we feel disempowered by the things that we see in our world, it's not that we can't do anything. The question is, what can we do? I I love the idea or the phrase or the principle, do for one what you cannot do for all. Do for one what you cannot do for all. And so we can't even as a church do everything, but we can do something. And we do those things together. And I hope we never do it out of a, a privileged, oh, I feel so sorry for those people. Kind of as if those people, the least of those are out there. Because I want to stay close not only to those people, but I feel like There's some sort of calling or invitation for me, too, to become one of the least of these. Maybe in the way that I interact with the world and possessions and all those kinds of things, but beyond that, too, to become the kind of person that takes on the leastness of Christ. I, I, a little off script here, but um, like we, we think about, you know, how, how do we influence the world and, and everything that's going on in the world, and, and even for the church, like, most of the time, it's, it's how do we get power to do this? How do we become super influential to do this? But Jesus is, he's going to show up and, and care for the least of these, and it's not about power position for him, even in eternity, apparently. And so how do, how do I develop in my life a posture of leastness? How do you develop in your life a posture of leastness? And what would happen if the church develops a posture of leastness? How might that, how might that change the world? Beginning with the environments that you're in, your homes, your places of employment, your neighborhoods, the people that you're with. What if you just become the least? What if, what if, what if that's like our, our goal? 
Success is leastness. It's certainly counterintuitive to everything that we strive after, to every argument that we want to win, every retirement account we want to secure, everything that we want to get. It's certainly counterintuitive. And so it's a challenge for each of us, but on Christ the King Sunday, uh, the king rides down into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? Jesus seems to be saying that leastness is central to being part of his kingdom. That leastness is fullness. And so I think leastness calls to us as individuals and as a community of faith. And I'm going to have Jesus, uh, let Jesus have the last word here as he tells us what his kingdom and teaches what his kingdom is all about. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. I want to invite us just into a time of, of quietness and prayer as we prepare to receive communion this morning. And if you want to get the kiddos and invite them to come up, just want to give us a moment of silence and allow the Holy Spirit to bring to the surface maybe something that you need to receive today that God desires for you to receive today. So let's just wait in the quiet for a moment. Lord Jesus, help us to reimagine your kingdom in the way that you desire for us to imagine it. Not a king that's a rags to riches story, but a king who seems to delight in wearing rags, taking his place among the least of these. And Jesus, I pray on earth as it is in heaven that your people would reflect who you are. And if you are the least of the least of these, Jesus, we as your people would reflect 
that nature and that character in our world. That we would be that because it's reflective of who you are. It's actually bearing witness of Christ in us. Lord, I pray too that as we live in a world that's not just a vacuum, where we say, oh, I'm going to become the least of these, Lord, um, the messages around us certainly don't encourage it. They encourage us to self-sufficiency and pride and overabundance, fear. So, Lord, lead us in the way of the least of these, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Come on, kiddos. You can come in. <laughs> I heard the stomping, so I was like, I got to end this prayer quick. For those of you who are new with us, uh, uh, kiddos, join us for communion on the, the last Sunday of the month, which is today.